Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Ice podcast. We had reached close to the end last time of the first act of Shakespeare's history play, Richard II, the first chronologically speaking in terms of the narrative line of an enormous double tetralogy of plays. Richard II is deposed and ultimately killed by the end of this play. And in some ways, this history play can be read as and resembles some of the tragedies, the membrane, you might say, between tragedy and history in Shakespeare is semi-permeable. The title page of Richard II, in fact, reads the tragedy of Richard II. And we can and we will take a look at Richard in terms of his character and his possible tragic flaw, the Aristotelian concept, very much as if he were a tragic hero. But the difference is that we have this enormous panorama of history and, in fact, of real history. For eight plays after this, we will see the outcome of that deposing and death of the King of England. And the results are disastrous with the momentary stay of the bright reign of Henry V in the middle of it. But Henry would die, and the throne would pass to the utter ineffectual weakling and, in fact, rather mentally ill character Henry VI. And England would be plunged into the Wars of the Roses, a disastrous period of time that would, in fact, wipe out the Plantagenet dynasty. What we are seeing in these plays is the long, slow death of the dynasty that came into England with William the Conqueror in the Norman Conquest clear back in 1066, and it is now 1398. Succeeding that would be the Tudor dynasty with Henry VII, then Henry VIII, and then, of course, Elizabeth. Shakespeare's source for the history plays, or at least his main source, was Holinshed's Chronicles. And the Chronicles were informed by a particular ideology, a particular slant on this historical period that became known as the Tudor myth. Even though it concerns the Plantagenets, the reason is that the Tudors used this history as propaganda to keep itself in power. The Tudor myth informing Holinshed, and we will see how much it informs Shakespeare, is basically this, that there is a divine order and the king is God's anointed. God put him on the throne. He is the order principle. And if he is dislodged, unbroken chaos and disaster will be visited upon the people who depose him and upon the people of England. Even if, as Richard definitely is, there is no doubt about it in this play, 
an ineffectual ruler, in fact, a corrupt ruler, and once again, possibly a mentally unstable ruler, especially by the end. Nevertheless, it is God's will, and the chaos and disaster that we see for eight plays is taken to be a warning to people, a warning that was applied by the tutors to themselves. Don't even think of revolting against us or even criticizing us because we are God's will. The question becomes whether Shakespeare buys the Tudor myth. The older view of Shakespeare tended to feel that yes, he did. He saw both sides of the story. He saw some of the shady underside of things. But nevertheless, when push came to shove, he supported the cause of the royal order backed by the divine order. It will not perhaps be a surprise to you that modern criticism tends to be a bit more skeptical and ironic, not only about the plot line, but about Shakespeare's attitude to all of this. And there are possibilities as to how we interpret what Shakespeare is really showing us. Is he indeed affirming with whatever qualifications the Tudor myth of a divine order that keeps the king in power, even a bad king? Is he, on the other hand, a complete skeptic who thinks that this is all a bunch of words, the theme of words and the power of words and the relationship of words to reality and to political power is a major theme of Richard II and indeed of the whole double tetralogy, but it is sounded loud and clear in the beginning play. But does Shakespeare believe in the power of the divine word, in the power of the royal word, or does he think more that this is simply propaganda, these are lies used by power players to keep themselves in power? Does he really believe that power, as Mao Zedong said in the 60s, is what comes out of the barrel of a gun. There were no guns in this time, but power is what is enforced by your army. Or is there a third possibility, a possibility that words do have power, but not a direct power, a power that involves their connection to what we nowadays call political theater. More on that later. But at any rate, that is the overarching issue of this play and of the whole double tetralogy. When we turn to Richard II's first act, we see the dynasty of the Plantagenets beginning to unravel. We have the remnants of the fabled seven sons of Edward III. Things were great in Edward III's time. He represents a kind of a nowadays increasingly long gone golden age in which things were as they should be and order was in the realm of England. 
He had seven sons, and Richard II is king, and has been king, by the way, for 20 years, even though in the play, I think it's often easy get, to get the feeling that he's a young upstart who has newly inherited the throne and doesn't know how to handle it. But in fact, he's been in power for 20 years, which makes it a little more understandable why he has managed to basically piss off so many people in his own realm. They are now at the end of 20 years of patience with him, it would appear. But at any rate, he is in power because of the rule of primogeniture. The crown goes to the eldest son of the eldest son. The eldest son of Edward III was Edward the Black Prince, and Richard is the son of the Black Prince. However, there are remaining two other brothers of the fam famous seven sons. There is John of Gaunt, whom we will be dealing with presently, and there is the slightly younger but still old Duke of York. These are the remaining players. The others are dead, and one of them has recently deceased via murder. Thomas Mowbray has been murdered by... Uh, Thomas of Woodstock has been murdered by a man named Mowbray, and the opening scene of Richard II is Henry Hefford challenging Thomas Mowbray to trial by combat for this murder, medieval ritual in which God would make sure that the right party won a ritual trial by combat. And we see the highly solemn and ritualized scenes of throwing down gauges and challenging each other in front of King Richard II, even though we think, and in fact, soon into the play, we know that it is basically a farce. That is the reason that Woodstock was killed by Mowbray was that Richard II himself secretly ordered it. One of his own family put to death by a henchman. And Hefford knows that. Bolingbroke knows that. He doesn't dare accuse directly, however. You can't accuse the king directly of murder and, in fact, accuse him of murder of a member of his own royal family. So instead, he takes it out on the intermediary, and heavy hints are dropped by Mowbray that he was indeed acting, as everyone basically assumes when their guard is dropped, that yes, Richard was behind this. But at any rate, they get ready for a duel in Act One, and at the last moment, Richard, stops this farce, because it really is an empty farce. He had no intention of letting this go through. He is using this as a pretext, a clever power move, in order to exile both men, both of whom are dangerous to him for obvious reasons. And the scene after he declares exile 
for both Bolingbroke and Marlborough is full of speeches about the power of the king's word. With one word, the king can banish. How long a time, Bolingbroke says, lies in one little word, four lagging winters and four wanton springs end in a word. Such is the breath of kings. The king's power resembles that of the God who put him on the throne, the God who created the universe by the power of the word. And here that power, that royal power of the word seems to be affirmed, but the entire play is something of an experiment, you might see, say, to see what the limits of the power of the king's word may be. And there are limits to the power of the word. Bolingbroke ends Act 1, Scene 3 with a speech. After his father, John of Gaunt, urges him to, when in your exile, think on hopeful things, think on good things, and Bolingbroke is having none of it. Words do not have that power. Who can hold a fire in his hand by thinking on the frosty Caucasus? or cloy the hungry edge of appetite by bare imagination of a feast, or wallow naked in December snow by thinking on fantastic summer's heat. We can't think or imagine things through the power of positive thinking, and words to that wishful thinking effect are just air. That's the other point of view. Act one ends with a brief scene of King Richard, and this is where we ended last time, meeting with his cohorts, a rather motley crew with the rather motley names of Bushy, Baggett, and Green, which sound like a crew of accountants. And that, in a way, is not totally wrong because these are money. This is a money source to Richard. If we don't know the historical background, we can infer a few things. These rather undignified sounding names compared to the Duke of this and the Earl of that. These people have no titles and they have these rather common names. They are not commoners or rather they are not the lower classes of people. They represent rather a moneyed middle class to which Richard turns and increasingly turns for funding. What Richard needs is money, money, money. English kings had no power of regular income and always were pushed, especially when a war came up, and a war always came up, they needed money and had no official ways to get it, and therefore had to make shift as they could. Richard cannot turn to the nobility to fund him, who are rivals to him in the first place, and he has alienated them in the second. And he has utterly alienated the common people by various pretexts that he is going to repeat right here and now, again, 
putting in action various ways of raising money off the common people that have already alienated them. He says to Bushy, Baggett, and Green, we are enforced to farm our royal realm. And if you have an addition with footnotes, as I hope you do, you will find that that means we are forced to lease the right of collecting taxes for a present cash payment to the highest bidder. In other words, I need money. You guys, you bid to give me money, and in return for that money to the highest bidder, I will give you the right to collect taxes as you choose, as many taxes or as much as you choose, and the people you're collecting from can't say no because it comes with the stamp of approval of the king, an utterly corrupt practice, and one that he has put into action before and again alienated the common people. And he says, if that comes short, our substitutes at home shall have blank charters, and your footnotes should tell you that these are basically blank checks. These are authorizing forced loans to the crown with a blank space. That's why they're called blank charters. They are indeed like blank checks with the names of the parties and the sums that they are to contribute. Here, you're going to give me a loan. It's an offer you can't refuse. These are basically mafia techniques that Richard has been using. And he does it through these middle-class henchmen. Consequently, he's alienated the nobility on the one hand, he's alienated the common people by his corruption on the other hand, but somebody else has been courting the common people. Richard notes that ourself, Bushy, Bagateer, and Green observed his courtship up to the common people and his means Bolingbroke. How he did did seem to dive into their hearts with humble and familiar courtesy. What, what reverence he did throw away on slaves. Bolingbroke is out there sucking up to the commoners. How disgusting. We see the lines of power being drawn here, and this will play itself out in the remainder of the play along with one more sudden event that will also have monetary consequences. The very last lines of Act One, Bushy comes in and announces, Old John of Gaunt is grievous sick, my lord, suddenly taken. Richard's half-dozen line remark are the last lines in Act One, and they immediately stamp a judgment on our minds about Richard. Now God put it, now put it God in the physician's mind to help him to his grave immediately. Why? Because the lining of his coffers shall make coats to deck our soldiers for these Irish wars. In other words, I hope his doctor does him in quicker rather than longer because we are going to take his estates and use them to fund 
are Irish wars. Richard is in war against the Irish, who are always rebelling. It's simply, at any given moment, the Irish are rebelling, and you have to go over there and put them down yet again. And sure enough, we have Irish wars, and Richard will leave the country soon, and this turns out to be not his best move, because the minute he leaves, Bolingbroke returns with an army. But the wars have been funded by seizing the estates of, of John of Gaunt after his death, estates that should have been Bolingbroke's. So he is yanking away Bolingbroke's inheritance, giving Bolingbroke a legitimate reason to revolt against him, as if he didn't have some already, and also making Bolingbroke's cause look just in the eyes of other people, as indeed it is just. God's anointed notwithstanding. Act two. Act two, scene one, an enormously long scene that takes up almost, not quite, but almost the full length of act two. And I might pause to say about scene division in Shakespeare, this becomes a whole subject in itself. Basically, we should keep in mind that the division into scenes is probably, this argument gets exceedingly complicated, but division into scenes as we have it in modern editions of Shakespeare basically goes back to the standard of the folio, but those divisions are not followed in most of the quartos, so that therefore modern scholars tend to assume that they are not Shakespeare's. Nonetheless, as with the division of into books with the Iliad and the Odyssey, nevertheless, whoever did the dividing didn't do it randomly or stupidly, and we can always learn something by seeing what things are contained within a particular scene and what things are saved to make another scene. And we have an enormously inclusive scene in the beginning of Act Two, which opens with one of the famous set speeches in all of Shakespeare, the deathbed speech of John of Gaunt. John of Gaunt, the next to the last surviving son of Edward III, dying and basically the famous speech that he now gives basically kills him. It apparently took his last burst of energy, and a page later it's reported that he expired off stage. But, as he himself says when he launches into it, the dying man is inspired by a sudden final energy. He opens by saying, Methinks I am a prophet, new inspired and thus expiring, do foretell of him, meaning Richard. He has been talking to his brother York, the last two sons of Edward III, both old, one on his deathbed, the other 
an old man who will be put in charge of England when Richard leaves for Ireland and who is overwhelmed and not up to that task. Two old men talking about the young Richard II. This is why I say Shakespeare plays a bit with the historical timeline. Richard had been on the throne for 20-some years in actuality at this point. But here he is, in the words of Gaunt, an unstayed youth. And they go on to talk about the immaturity here and the fact that not only Richard, but the other young'uns are led astray. The open ear of youth doth always listen to certain lascivious meters, as York puts it. And one of the things he mentions is report of fashions in proud Italy. And what we take from this is, first of all, the reference to fashion, which echoes what we have seen in Much Ado About Nothing. Fashion being something that young people are conscious of and old people are detached from, but it also indicates a taste for luxury it indicates instability, fashion changes, and it's a kind of immature thing to be focused on fashion. Probably the more thoughtful members of the audience would also have thought about intellectual fashions coming in from Italy, not just new styles of clothes, because the great challenge to the old idealistic view of the king as God's anointed and a divine order to history had in Shakespeare's time come from Italy in the form of the works of Machiavelli, who said the prince, in other words the ruler, must pretend to observe all due proprieties and all the laws, but in actuality if he's too good, he's not going to keep his position for very long. It's all power politics, and any pretense otherwise is just an illusion, a necessary lie. That's another kind of fashion. And we're going to see what we think about Shakespeare's attitude to all of this. At any rate, Gaunt infused, inspired, on his deathbed with a tremendous energy, bursts into this tremendous speech that is often quoted as Shakespeare's point of view, Shakespeare's patriotism. And it can be taken that way. It was taken that way by, for example, Lawrence of Livier, when he made the fourth play in this tetralogy, Henry V. In 1943, Henry V is basically the triumph of England and an entire play that seems to enforce English patriotism and the great spirit of England. Olivier made the film of it as part of the war effort in 1943. Here we get what you could regard as a kind of overture to that play. And it is, as I say, a 
very famous set speech. Part of it runs like this. God speaks of revving himself up as he goes. This royal throne of kings, this sceptered isle, this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden, demi-paradise, this fortress built by nature for herself against infection and the hand of war, this happy breed of men, this little world, this precious stone set in the silver sea which serves it in the office of a wall or as a moat defensive to a house against the envy of less happier lands. This blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England, this nurse, this teeming womb of royal kings, feared by their breed and famous for, by their birth, renowned for their deeds as far from home, for Christian service and true chivalry, as is the sepulchre in stubborn Jewry of the world's ransom, blessed Mary's son. This land of such dear souls, this dear, dear land, dear for her reputation through the world, is now leased out. I die pronouncing it like to a tenement or pelting farm. And he goes on to say, is now bound with shame, with inky blots and rotten parchment bonds. The great England, the demi-paradise, now is like to a tenement or pelting farm. York rather mildly, says, deal mildly with his youth. <laughs> Tone it down a little, he's young, for hot coal colts being rained do rage the more. If you bellow like this in his face, he's young, he's hot-headed, he's going to get stubborn on you. God doesn't heed that advice of his brother. Richard comes in, and ask, what comfort man? How is it with aged Gaunt? And Gaunt, first of all, his dying energy continues, and he launches into about eight lines of punning on his name. I am old Gaunt indeed, and Gaunt in being old. And he keeps on with this. Hast thou made me gaunt? Gaunt am I for the grave, gaunt as a grave, and so on. And Richard looks at him and says, Can sick men play so nicely with their names? Gaunt shoots back at him, Oh, no, thou diest, though I the sicker be. We have a reference here, as we do several times, to a doctrine or convention known sometimes as the King's Two Bodies. It's a famous historical work called that. And the idea was that the king has two selves, two bodies. One is his personal human body, but the king is his subjects. He is his subjects embodied in one person. 
He is a collective being. And here, the body that is ill is the body of England itself, which is the real king, the real identity. Yes, the personal Richard is young and in good health, but really the king is dying because the king's second body is the land itself. This is a version of the same myth that we see in the Grail legends as the Fisher King, because the Fisher King is wounded and wounded in the thigh and sterile. Therefore, his kingdom is turned into the wasteland that can only be healed by the Grail. Richard, this goes right over his head, as we might expect, and he says, I am in health. I breathe and see thee ill. And Gaunt goes on to instruct him, Thy deathbed is no lesser than thy land, wherein thou liest in reputation sick. A thousand flatterers sit within thy crown, whose compass is no bigger than thy head. Landlord of England art thou now, not king. You are so subject to your creditors that you have no real power left. The state of law is bond slave to the law. And Richard indeed flies off the handle. A lunatic, lean-witted fool presuming on an ague's privilege. He is royally pissed off, we shall say. And if you were not brother to great Edward's son, Gaunt says, oh, spare me not my brother Edward's son. That blood has already been spilled. They part, not reconciled, to put it mildly, and immediately the word comes several lines later, exit Richard, enter Northumberland. What says he, Richard says? Nay, nothing, all is said. His tongue, Gaunt's tongue, is now a stringless instrument, words, life, and all, old Lancaster hath spent. And immediately, Richard pronounces, now for our Irish wars. He all but says good riddance. And for those great affairs, do ask some charge. Towards our assistance, we do seize to us the plate, coin, revenues, and movables, wherein, whereof our uncle Gaunt doth stand possessed. He just baldly says, I need money for Irish wars. It's very convenient that he croaked right now. I'm taking them. York is appalled. And York, who is a mild-mannered man, says, how long shall I be patient? Not Gloucester's death, not Hefford's banishment, nor Gaunt's rebukes, nor England's private wrongs, Nothing so far has moved my loyalty, but I am the last 
of noble Edward's sons, of whom thy father, Prince of Wales, was first. And he goes on to say, listen to me. Take Hefford's rights away, and take from time his charters and his customary rights. Let not tomorrow then ensue today, be not thyself, for how art thou a king but by fair sequence and succession? You pluck a thousand dangers on your head if you do this. In other words, if you refuse to observe the proper line of succession and inheritance with God. You're going to give everybody else an excuse to ignore the same duties with you. You are only king by observance of the words of succession of the laws. Think what you will, Richard says, we will seize into our hands his plate, his goods, his money, and his lands. York says, I'll not be by the while, my liege, farewell. What will ensue hereof, there's none can tell. And it's left at that, except that as he's going out the door, Richard creates our uncle York, Lord Governor of England in my absence, the poor guy who says, I wash my hands of this. Richard says, I don't care. And by the way, you rule England while I'm gone. You're basically regent. We already can see that this will not end well, and we will follow it as it plays out further next week.